Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open one more time to the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, a very short text. And we're looking at the church at Smyrna. Remember, we're looking at all seven of the churches of Asia Minor that are addressed by the Lord Jesus through the pen of the Apostle John. And as Tony reminded us earlier, last week we looked at the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a great historic church founded by the Apostle Paul. They had a lot going for them. Remember that uh, the Lord commended them because they were hardworking, they were discerning, they uh, were able to mark out false teachers and avoid them. And yet there was also some correction that came from the Lord towards the church at Ephesus. He says, I have someone against you that you've left your first love. They had failed to fan the flame of fervency towards the Lord. Um, and so he brought to them a warning that if they did not repent, did not go back to the way they used to be, that he would remove what he called their candlestick, that is their effectiveness, their ability to minister and be a light for Christ in the world. He would set them on a shelf, in other words, and no longer use them for his glory. But on the other hand, he promised them forgiveness and restoration and usefulness if they would repent and he reminded them that uh, if they would indeed persevere to the end and overcome, they would all eat of the tree of life. And so we come now uh, to verse 8. But before we do, I want you to note a pattern in each of these seven letters. The pattern goes something like this. It begins with the identification of the author. Of course, it's Jesus in every case, but he gives them some characteristic or aspect of his nature to introduce himself. He commends them or rebukes them or has a mixture of those two things. Then there's a warning or a prophecy. And then finally, there is a promise. And we'll see each of those elements in uh, these five verses. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first, the last, who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're, you're rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. And so here we see that pattern emerge. He introduces himself, um, but he says, here's who I'm addressing the letter to, to the angel. That is the pastor who would read the letter aloud to the congregation. And then uh, he says the first and the last. He's identifying himself. Only Jesus is the first and the last. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, the last. He introduces himself sometimes in that way here in the book of Revelation. I think what that means is that he was from the beginning and he will be for all of eternity. He's eternal. This is one of his divine attributes. 
And then he uh, begins to say that this is to the church at Smyrna. Remember, each city was fortunate to have one church. So it was the church in the city of Smyrna. Now, the city of Smyrna was about 30 miles north of Ephesus. It also was on the western coast of Asia Minor, and it was a great trade center, much as Ephesus had been. It had a better harbor than Ephesus, and they too had grown very, very wealthy from the trade that would come from Europe and uh, cross from Africa, and it was a very, very beautiful city. They prided themselves on being the most beautiful city in that part of the world. Um, it had a substantial Jewish population. That's going to be important as we look in just a moment. Um, but they were incredibly loyal to Rome. Many of the ancient cities competed about who could love Rome the most, and Smyrna seemed to be the winner. They won a contest to see who would have the privilege of building a temple in Caesar's honor. And they did build that uh, temple to Caesar, and they worshiped Caesar primarily. Um, they were famous also for their athletic contest, and they often would host these contests, usually in honor of Caesar. And in the midst of all that was going on, all this uh, pageantry and paganism, God planted a church. Now, how they got started, we don't know. Unlike the church at Ephesus, where we have a grand history in the book of Acts of how they got started and how they were mentored and who their pastors were, we don't have any of that in the New Testament when it relates to Smyrna. I think it's very likely that when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus and teaching and training, that uh, he trained up some disciples who went out into that part of the world and planted a church. We simply don't know. But uh, what we do know is that it was a church that suffered great persecution. In fact, sometimes when you read about the church at Smyrna, it's identified as the suffering church. And we see that because of verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know. And this is the same word we've seen several times already. When Jesus says, I know you, he really does. This is a word that means I know every intimate detail about you. I have experiential knowledge of you. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. They had triple trouble. There were three major stressors coming against the church at Smyrna. And the first is what he simply calls tribulation. It's a Greek word that means pressure. And that likely is coming from the culture, the local Gentiles, maybe the Roman government, but certainly um, the culture in general. Um, then they had poverty. And this word for poverty means extreme poverty. They struggled just to subsist. But he parenthetically notes, I, I note your poverty, but you are rich. Now, what in the world does that mean? He's, he's not saying they have some secret hoard of cash somewhere. He's speaking of spiritual riches. And we later on will find another church that he condemns and rebukes. He says, you say to yourself, we are rich, increased with goods and in need of nothing. But in reality, spiritually, in other words, you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And so it's just the opposite of that in Smyrna. They are physically and fiscally poor, but spiritually they have great riches. Now, which one's most important? And one of the great themes of the Bible is to value the spiritual and the eternal over the physical and the temporary. So the Bible says not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal and moths destroy and rust corrupts, but we're to lay up for our treasure in heaven. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and instructed them to set their affections in heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. So apparently the church at Smyrna in large was doing that. 
they're commended for that. Even in the midst of tribulation and pressure and poverty, they are remaining faithful. But there's another stressor coming against them. He says, there's blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That word blasphemy actually means slander. There, there's lies being told, apparently, about the church at Smyrna, and it's coming from the local synagogue. Remember I told you there was a substantial Jewish population there. And John is pretty harsh. It's not John, though. It's Jesus through John. And he's saying they claim they are Jews, but they're really not. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember the Apostle Paul wrote that a person is not Jewish by anything external, but by the circumcision of the heart. They prove themselves to be truly a servant of God. And so the Jewish people were God's people, but they weren't behaving like God's people. They were behaving like Satan's people. It reminds us of what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, what? The devil. And he uses that same terminology here. He says, you've got a synagogue, which was the local Jewish house of worship, but it's not a synagogue of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. And of course, we see right away something that we find throughout the Bible is that when there are systems and governments and institutions and individuals who are persecuting God's people, in reality, Satan's behind the scenes. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, we wrestle not, we, we fight not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. This is a spiritual realm in which these things are taking place. And so he's saying that they're lying about you. So what lies are being told about the church at Smyrna? Well, we don't know specifically. I think we can make a very good guess because of what history tells us was said about the church in the Roman Empire. For one, they were accused of being atheist. A means against, theos, God. They were against God. Atheism has come to mean one who doesn't believe there is a God. But in that context, it meant that they, were, they would not bow their knee to the gods of this world. And remember, who did we say they primarily worshiped in Smyrna? Caesar. In fact, you were required as a citizen to utter the phrase ever so often that Caesar is Lord. Can you imagine a Christian who had professed his faith by saying Jesus is Lord, having to utter the phrase Caesar is Lord? Now we know both of those things can't be true. If you're Lord, you're sovereign. You can't share your sovereignty or else you're not sovereign. And so many of these Christians refused as they should to say Caesar is Lord. They would not burn incense. They wouldn't sacrifice to Caesar. And therefore, many in the community look down upon them. They're making us look bad in, in Rome. These rebels among us, we have to do something about them. Another slander that was leveled against the first century church is that they, believe it or not, were cannibals. Now, where would such a lie come from? Well, we know that uh, when we take of the Lord's Supper, we talk about the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we Baptists understand that to be symbolic, um, and yet there's a lot of confusion in the world. Well, what are these Christians doing? Drinking blood and eating flesh. They must be cannibalistic, and so that lie was spread. But probably the most popular lie about Christians is that they were licentious. Uh, there was something in the first century called the Christian love feast, where Christians would come together and share their food and fellowship, and the rumor got out that this was more than, than food, they, they were having a sexual orgy. 
Of course, none of these things were true, and that's why they're slander. Any of these pressures, their poverty, their tribulation, their, the slander against them would be enough to cause them to be driven to despair, and yet they stood strong amidst all three. Now, I said that the pattern of this letter is similar, if not exactly like the others. Only the letter to the church at Smyrna and the letter to the church at Philadelphia has no rebuke. There's not a mixture of things you're doing well and things you're not doing well. There's no rebuke at all against them, and yet it's not a happy letter, is it? Because what comes next is a very pointed prophecy. Verse 10, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, wait a second. When, when you're reading a story and there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, at, at some point you want to release from that, right? And, and you want to hear happily ever after. But that's not what we find here. He says, you have tribulation, you have poverty, the Jews are slandering you, and cheer up, it's about to get worse. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now that seems like a very specific prophecy. So in addition to the pressure from the Gentiles, pressuring them to bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord, in addition to their deep poverty, trying to make it to the next day, and the slander from the Jews now is added the imminent threat of imprisonment for 10 days. Now, is this literal 10 days? Well, there's a principle of hermeneutics that we try to follow here. And that is if the Bible doesn't explicitly say something is symbolic or metaphorical, we take it literally. And so I think we take that literally. This is a 10-day intense sort of persecution. Now, he's not saying that will be the only persecution you'll ever face. He's just saying there's coming very soon an intense period of 10 days of persecution. Now, I think that tells us some things, doesn't it, about God and the nature of persecution against the church. It tells us that God is sovereign over it. It's that he puts a limitation on it. And let me say it this way, Christian. Whatever you're going through for the sake of the gospel, you will not suffer one second longer than God deems necessary because he's ultimately in control. Nothing happens that he doesn't cause or allow. And when he says that's enough of that, that's enough of that. So the end of this tribulation is not specified other than it will last for, for 10 periods, but it is referred to here by Christ. And we know from church history that the church at Smyrna indeed was persecuted on and off for decades longer. Probably the most famous persecution that happened against the church at Smyrna happened when a man by the name of Polycarp was their elderly pastor. Polycarp, we believe, was trained by the Apostle Paul. And so about 50 years after this letter to the church at Smyrna was written, the city got whipped up into a frenzy one day. They were having one of these festivals that we talk about to honor Caesar. The people had gathered in the stadiums. They had been drinking alcohol. They had been enjoying the games and the animals and um, the sacrifices all day long. And, and someone says, away with the atheist. Now, who were the atheists in the mind of the Smyrnans? It was the Christians. They refused to bow to Caesar. And they knew that Polycarp was the pastor of this little group of Christians, these people they called atheists. And they said, bring us Polycarp. They're going to kill him publicly just for their own entertainment. 
Well, Polycarp's friends had gotten wind that this might happen, and so they had secreted him away to a farm just outside of the city. And before very long, though, they had found him. And they bring him by cart back to the city, and people are waiting with bated breath. They want to see this old man killed. Some of the people started shouting, sick a lion on him. And they said, no, that's too good for him. Let's burn him at the stake. And so they gave him an opportunity to recant. He was well-respected even among the dignitaries. And so when he was given a chance to speak, this is what he said. Eighty and six years I have served Jesus, and he has never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with the fires that burns for a season and then is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fires of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then he quietly stood as they burned him alive. Polycarp, Polycarp was a hero of the faith and is a hero of the faith. How could those men and women like Polycarp endure such treatment, not just for a little while, but over lifetimes and decades? I think it's because of something that I'm calling sacred security. Sacred security. Look at verse 11. Actually, verse 10. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's sacred security. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, what is the crown of life? When we think of crowns, we think of royalty, right? Some of us remember uh, some ceremonies in our lifetimes where a new king or queen is uh, crowned. Um, but I don't think that's what he's speaking of here. Now, we are, the Scripture says, a royal priesthood. We're joint heirs with Jesus, so there's a sense in which we're in a royal family. But I believe he's speaking here of what the Bible calls that uh, crown of victory, that crown of righteousness. Paul talked about it in 2 Timothy 4. Remember, this is a culture that loved athletics. And in our country, we do too. And the champions awarded a big trophy at the end, right? In those days, the champions were given a crown, oftentimes of leaves that were twisted together and placed on their hand to show their victory. So Paul talks about the crown that he's after. 2 Timothy 4, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and my time of my departure has come. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. That's the imagery of athletics. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Every Christian who is faithful to the end can expect this victory crown. Peter spoke of it in 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And Peter puts in sharp relief spiritual treasure and earthly treasure, heavenly crowns and earthly awards. See, remember I told you they gave the, the guy that won the race this uh, wreath on his head, but that wreath after a few days dried up and shriveled up and was thrown in the fire. It didn't last. Well, 
In a similar way, the scripture says when we invest heavily in this life and not in heaven, we may accumulate and we may die wealthy in the eyes of the world, but that's all we're ever going to get. Because Peter says one day this world's going to be burned up with fervent heat, isn't it? And so he says instead we ought to be putting our treasure in, in heaven. By, by the way, our heavenly treasure is guarded not by the FDIC and not by armed soldiers, but by the Lord himself. And he says it uh, doesn't diminish in value. It's not subject to inflation, not subject to theft. It does not fade away, this crown of glory. So I think there's something very important to note here. We believers may be called to suffer for the Lord's sake all of our life. And we may be called to die a very violent death. That, that happened, didn't it? And it's still happening in the world. But, but hear this. Even if we suffer every day of our life for 100 years and die a violent, brutal death, that is all the suffering we will ever have to do. That is his point here. He says, I'm going to give you the crown of life, and he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's why this 86-year-old man could stand there courageously and preach the gospel even as the flames are licking at his feet because he believed the Lord's promise. Remember that pattern? An introduction, a rebuke or a condemnation, a prophecy and a promise. And here's the promise. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, first of all, we don't know what the first death is. The Bible says it's the point every man wants to die and then to be judged. Whether you're a Christian or not, the death rate's still 100%, isn't it? We're not going to get out of this world alive. And so uh, we need to be cognizant of that. We had a funeral here yesterday. We have another one scheduled for Monday. That's not an uncommon occurrence here. We've been reminded of that as we see the Statistical totals going up and up every time we open the newspaper. It's a good reminder from the Lord. It's a gracious reminder. But he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We're not promised that we won't die. We're promised that the second death will have no power. What is the second? Second death is judgment. Second death is, is hell, and Christians will not experience. The first death is common to saved and unsaved alike. The second death is only for the lost. The first death is temporary. The second death is permanent. But for Christians, we don't have to fear it. What's Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do we have to fear? What can man do to us? I think there's some uh, wonderful application here. That, that may seem so foreign to us, this obscure place called Smyrna 2,000 years ago. What in the world would that have to do to us? Uh, by the way, there's still a great and thriving city there. It's changed names several times through the years, but uh, still one of the most beautiful cities and harbors in the world. You can visit there. It's in the nation of Turkey. And, and so we forget that these are real people. And sometimes we also forget that for the believer, 
All trials are temporary. That's the first note of application. For the believer, all trials are temporary. Now, trials can come from a lot of different directions. Sometimes God directly causes things to happen because he needs us to grow in certain areas. Sometimes God brings pain into our lives as Christians for our own good. Sometimes you parents bring pain into the life of your children for their own good, don't you? But if they're wise, they'll receive it as it's given. They'll learn from it and they'll grow. Sometimes the trials come from the devil as he seeks to destroy our ministry. Jesus told the apostle Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And he overcame. Sometimes trials, I think, are just part of being a human being. We know that ultimately all the suffering in the world and all the death in the world is a result of our first parent's sin in the garden, the curse that came upon them and every subsequent generation. As Job says, the sparks fly upward, so man is made for trouble. So, so whatever direction the trials come from and whatever the source, they all have one thing in common. For believers, they're all temporary. Jesus says this, this period of persecution is going to last for 10 days. It, it has a beginning and it has an end and God is sovereign all the way through, which tells me this, he can be trusted. He's not causing us to suffer for his own morbid entertainment. Everything that happens in the world, you hear this all the time, people say it so tritely. So someone will go through the worst sort of tragedy and their friend trying to bring comfort. Well, there must be a reason for it. Well, friends, if you're a Christian and you're going through trials, there is a reason for it. And we may not be able to see it right away, but the Lord knows and he will teach us those lessons he, he ten, intends to teach us. He can be trusted. So a believer's trials are all temporary. And then secondly, that means our suffering is worth it. That is, it's not in vain. It's not just an exercise in futility. This was the confession of the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? He was a man that understood suffering. He was beaten multiple times, nearly to the point of death. He was stoned nearly to death. He was run out of town more than once. He was often in prison. He was shipwrecked twice. He was bitten by snakes. He was undermined by people he loved. And yet in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, here's what Paul says, looking back on his life. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to what is to be revealed in us. Paul was laying up treasure in heaven. Every time he suffered for the Lord, he was making a deposit. And what he said is one day when this life is over and all the suffering we have to do is behind us, it'll be a distant, if not even unthought of thing because of the magnificence of the glory of heaven. So Christian, fear not. You may have to suffer. You may have to suffer every day of your life. You may have to die for the sake of the Lord, but it's worth it. And that causes me thirdly to remind us all to, to pray for the persecuted church today. We, and, and I use that plural pronoun because I include myself. We have grown up, most of us, and lived in this little bubble of prosperity and freedom all of our lives. 
And if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that we deserve it or that's normal. Neither of those things is true. We don't deserve it and it is not normal. In fact, what is normal for Christians is persecution. All of those who expect to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution, the scripture says. So those of us who have never really experienced real persecution are outliers to what is normal. But I don't know about you, I'm starting to see signs that that's changing. And so not only should we pray for those in the world who are being persecuted, and, and did you know that there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in any other century? And the 21st century is probably going to break that record. This is not something in only the ancient world. Persecution did not end with the end of the Roman Empire, friends. It's going on all around us today. It's going on in China and in India and Pakistan and Indonesia, the Sudan. I could go on and on and on. So those are our brothers and sisters. We ought to pray for them and we ought to assist them at every opportunity. This is our family. But I think um, probably the strongest application today, number four, is that we need to prepare for our own testing. I told you some months ago, that, that's how I plan <laughs> to spend the rest of my ministry here. The rest of my time that I have my children in my home is preparing them and preparing all of us for what I believe is about to happen. That the Lord may allow us those of us who are Christians living in the United States of America to taste some of what Christians all over the world have tasted for 2,000 years. And I think it's going to begin with that very first thing that came against the church at Smyrna, which is pressure from the culture. You've got to conform. You've got to think like us and talk like us and vote like us. And if you don't, there's going to come a point where we're going to say away with you. And so it doesn't often begin with being thrown to the lions or burned at the stake. It starts with financial pressure. You're not going to be able to get a job. You're not going to get a promotion. We're going to fine you. And that's going to lead to that second thing the church at Smyrna faced, poverty. But you know what? Some of the <laughs> richest people I know don't have two nickels to rub together. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. You're rich in heaven. And there may be those, and some already, who are slandering God's church, who are saying we hold to things that we don't hold to. But look, don't think something strange is happening. This has been going, didn't they slander our Lord? Didn't they lie about him? That's the only way they could get him on the cross. They couldn't find anything that he actually did wrong. So they had to make up things. They'll do the same dust. Jesus said, a servant is not better than his master. If they treated me that way, they'll treat you that way. So let's prepare for that testing that is almost certain to come, if not in our lifetime, certainly our children's. But even as we're doing that, the message here, right before he said, here's what's about to happen that's real bad. Look back at verse 10. Three words. Do not what? Fear. You don't have to be afraid. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. You're not going to suffer one second longer than is necessary. And when you die, it's all behind you. 
and for the rest of eternity, you will enjoy the glories of heaven. What a wonderful promise that is. Remember the pattern? began with an introduction, and it ends with a promise. And the promise is this, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for faithful Christians all over the world today and for the last 2,000 years who have suffered with dignity and grace, some of them given the ultimate sacrifice, their own lives, and some of them very violent deaths. And that's going on in the world today, Lord. And uh, forgive us where we've turned a blind eye to that and been willingly ignorant. Father, I want to lift up brothers and sisters all over the world today who live in fear of their life, or could, because there are those who seek to do them harm. They can't gather publicly for fear of jail. They have to do it secretly. Father, forgive us of not being thankful enough for the liberty that we've enjoyed these many years. Father, you tell us um, to whom much is given, much is required. And we have been given much in the way of material blessings. We've been given much in the way of political clout and esteem. And we've been given much as it relates to religious freedom. Father, it's painful as we see those things diminishing. And yet, Lord, we're reminded to fear not. Really, that, I believe, is the overarching message of the book of Revelation. It's going to get worse. Fear not. Lord, we know that ultimately you're going to rescue the church. And we know that ultimately any suffering we do here is very temporary. So, Lord, help us to remember the book of Hebrews says about Jesus and his suffering and the cross, that he was able to endure that for the joy that was before him. Lord, we have unending joy on the other side of this life. So help us to live for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.